Section 19 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10, Part 1. Two weeks of lonely solitude in the forest had worked incalculable change in Ellen Jorth. Late in June, her father and her two uncles had packed and ridden off with Dags, Coulter, and six other men, all heavily armed, some somber with drink, others hard and grim with a foretaste of fight. Ellen had not been given any orders. Her father had forgotten to bid her goodbye or had avoided it. Their dark mission was stamped on their faces. They had gone, and, keen as had been Ellen's pang, nevertheless, their departure was a relief. She had heard them bluster and brag so often that she had her doubts of any great Jorth Isbel war. Barking dogs did not bite. Somebody, perhaps on each side, would be badly wounded, possibly killed, and then the feud would go on as before, mostly talk. Many of her former impressions had faded. Development had been so rapid and continuous in her that she could look back to a day-by-day -day transformation. At night she had hated the sight of herself, and when dawn came she would rise, singing. Jorth had left Ellen at home with the Mexican woman and Antonio. Ellen saw them only at mealtimes, and often not then, for she frequently visited old John Sprague, or came home late to do her own cooking. It was but a short distance up to Sprague's cabin, and since she had stopped riding the black horse, Spades, she walked. Spades was accustomed to having grain, and in the mornings he would come down to the ranch and whistle. Ellen had vowed she would never feed the horse and bade Antonio do it. But one morning Antonio was absent. She fed Spades herself. When she laid a hand on him, and when he rubbed his nose against her shoulder, she was not quite so sure she hated him. Why should I, she queried. A horse can't help it if he belongs to, to. Ellen was not sure of anything, except more and more it grew good to be alone. A whole day in the lonely forest passed swiftly, yet it left a feeling of long time. She lived by her thoughts. Always the morning was bright, sunny, sweet, and fragrant and colorful, and her mood was pensive, wistful, dreamy. And always, just as surely as the hours passed, thought intruded upon her happiness, and thought brought memory, and memory brought shame and shame brought fight. Sunset after sunset, she had dragged herself back to the ranch, sullen and sick and beaten. Yet she never ceased to struggle. The July storms came, and the florist floor, that had been so sere and brown and dry and dusty, changed as if by magic. The green grass shot up, the flowers bloomed, and along the canyons, Beds of lacy ferns swayed in the wind and bent their graceful tips over the amber-colored waters. Ellen haunted these cool dells, these pine-shaded, mossy-rocked ravines, where the brooks tinkled and the deer came down to drink. She wandered alone, but there grew to be company in the aspens and the music of the little waterfalls. 
if she could have lived in that solitude always, never returning to the ranch home that reminded her of her name, she could have forgotten and have been happy. She loved the storms. It was a dry country, and she had learned through years to welcome the creamy clouds that rolled from the southwest. They came sailing and clustering and darkening at last to form a great purple angry mass that appeared to lodge against the mountain rim and burst into dazzling streaks of lightning and gray palls of rain. Lightning seldom struck near the ranch, but up on the rim there was never a storm that did not splinter and crash some of the noble pines. During the storm season, sheepherders and woodsmen generally did not camp under the pines. Fear of lightning was inborn in the natives, but for Ellen the dazzling white streaks or the tremendous splitting crackling shock or the thunderous boom and rumble along the battlements of the rim had no terrors. A storm eased her breast. Deep in her heart was a hidden gathering storm, and somehow to be out where the elements were warring, when the earth trembled and the heavens seemed to burst asunder, afforded her strange relief. The summer days became weeks, and farther and farther they carried Ellen on the wings of solitude and loneliness, until she seemed to look back years at the self she had hated. And always, when the dark memory impinged upon peace, she fought and fought until she seemed to be fighting hatred itself. Scorn of scorn and hate of hate, yet even her battles grew to be dreams. For when the inevitable retrospect brought back Jean Isabel and his love and her cowardly falsehood, she would shudder a little bit and put an unconscious hand to her breast and utterly fail in her fight and drift off down to vague and wistful dreams. The clean and healing forest, with its whispering wind and imperious solitude, had come between Ellen and the meaning of the squalid sheep ranch, with its travesty of home, its tragic owner, and it was coming between her two selves, the one that she had been forced to be and the other that she did not know, the thinker, the dreamer, the romancer, the one who lived in fancy the life she loved. The summer morning dawned that brought Ellen strange tidings. They must have been created in her sleep, and now were realized in the glorious burst of golden sun, in the sweep of creamy clouds across the blue, in the solemn music of the wind in the pines, in the wild screech of the blue jays, and the noble bugle of a stag. These heralded the day as no ordinary day. Something was going to happen to her. She divined it, she felt it, and she trembled. Nothing beautiful, hopeful, wonderful could ever happen to Ellen Jorth. She had been born to disaster, to suffer, to be forgotten and die alone. Yet all nature about her seemed a magnificent rebuke to her morbidness. The same spirit that came out there with a thick amber light was in her. She lived and something in her was stronger than mind. Ellen went to the door of her cabin, where she flung out her arms, driven to embrace this nameless purport of the morning. And a well-known voice broke in upon her rapture. "'Well, lass, I like to see you happy, and I hate myself for coming. 
because I've been to Grass Valley for two days and I've got news. Old John Sprague stood there with a smile that did not hide a troubled look. Oh, Uncle John, you startled me, exclaimed Ellen, shocked back to reality. And slowly she added, Grass Valley? News? She put out an appealing hand, which Sprague quickly took in his own, as if to reassure her. Yes, and not bad so far as you Jorths are concerned, he replied. The first Jorth Isbel fight has come off. Reckon you remember making me promise to tell you if I heard anything? Well, I didn't wait for you to come up. So Ellen heard her voice calmly saying, What was this lying calm when there seemed to be a stone hammer at her heart? The first fight, not so bad for the Jorths. Then it had been bad for the Isbels. A sudden cold stillness fell upon her senses. Let's sit down outdoors, Sprague was saying. Nice and sunny this morning. I declare I'm out of breath, not used to walking. And besides, I left Grass Valley in the night and I'm tired. But excuse me for hanging round that village last night. There were sure... Who, who was killed, interrupted Ellen, her voice breaking low and deep. Guy Isbel and Bill Jacobs on the Isbel side, and Daggs, Craig, and Greaves on your father's side, stated Sprague, with something of awed haste. Ah, breathed Ellen, and she relaxed to sink back against the cabin wall. Sprague seated himself on the log beside her, turning to face her, and he seemed burdened and grave with important matters. I heard a good many conflicting stories, he said earnestly. The village folks is all scared, and there's no believing their gossip. But I got what happened, straight from Jake Everts. The fight come off day before yesterday. Your father's gang rode down to Isbel's ranch. Daggs was seen to be wanting some of the Isbel horses, so Everts says, and Guy Isbel and Jacobs ran out in the pasture. Daggs and some others shot them down. Kill them that way? put in Ellen sharply. So Everts says he was on the ridge and swears he's seen it all. They killed Guy and Jacobs in cold blood. No chance for their lives, not even the fight. Well, then they surrounded the Isbel cabin. The fight lasted all that day and all night and the next day. Everts says Guy and Jacobs laid out there all this time, and a herd of hogs broke in the pasture and was eating the dead bodies. My God, burst out Ellen. Uncle John, you sure can't mean my father wouldn't stop fighting long enough to drive the hogs off and bury those dead men. Edward says they stopped fighting all right, but it was to watch the hogs, declared Sprague. And then, what do you think? The women folks come out the red-headed one, Guy's wife, and Jacob's wife. They drove the hogs away and buried their husbands right there in the pasture. Everett says he has seen the graves. It is the women who can teach these bloody Texans a lesson, declared Ellen forcibly. Well, Daggs was drunk, and he got up from behind where the gang was hiding and dared the Isabels to come out. They shot him to pieces, and that night... Some one of the Isabels shot Craig, who was alone on guard. And last, 
This here is what I come to tell you. Jean Isabel slipped up in the dark on Greaves and knifed him. Why do you want to tell me that particularly? asked Ellen slowly. Because I reckon the facts in the case are queer, and because, Ellen, your name was mentioned, announced Sprague positively. My name mentioned, echoed Ellen. Her horror and disgust gave way to a quickening process of thought, a mounting astonishment. By whom? Jean Isbel, replied Sprague, as if the name and the fact were momentous. Ellen sat still as a stone, her hands between her knees. Slowly, she felt the blood recede from her face, pricking her kin down below her neck. That name locked her thought. Ellen, it's a mighty queer story. Too queer to be a lie, went on Sprague. Now you listen. Everts got this from Ted Meeker, and Ted Meeker heard it from Greaves, who didn't die till the next day after Jean knifed him. And your dad shot Ted for telling what he heard. No, Greaves wasn't killed outright. He was cut something terrible in two places. They wrapped him all up, and next day packed him in a wagon back to Grass Valley. Everett says Ted Meeker was friendly with Greaves and went to see him as he was laying in his room next to the store. Well, according to Meeker's story, Greaves came to and talked. He said he was sitting there in the dark, shooting occasionally at Isbel's cabin, when he heard a rustling behind him in the grass. He knowed someone was crawling on him, but before he could get his gun around, he was jumped by what he thought was a grizzly bear. But it was a man, and he shut off Greaves' wind and dragged him back in the ditch. And he said, Greaves, it's the half-breed, and he's going to cut you, first for Ellen Jorth, and then for Gaston Isbel. Greaves said, Jean ripped him with a bowie knife, and that was all Greaves remembered. He died soon after telling this story. He must have fought awful hard. The second cut Isbel gave him went clear through him. Some of the gang was there when Greaves talked, and naturally they wondered why Jean Isbel had said, first for Ellen Jorth. Somebody remembered that Greaves had cast a slur on your good name, Ellen. And then they had Jean Isbel's reason for saying that to Greaves. It caused a lot of talk, and when Sim Bruce busted in, some of the gang haw-hawed him and said as how he'd get the third cut from Jean Isbel's buoy. Bruce was half drunk, and he began to cuss and rave about Jean Isbel being in love with his girl. As bad luck would have it, a couple of more fellas come in and asked meeker questions. He just got to that part, Greaves, it's the half-breed, and he's going to cut you, first for Ellen Jorth, when in walked your father. Then it all had to come out, what Jean Isabel had said and done, and why. How Greaves had backed Sim Bruce in slurring you. Sprague paused to look hard at Ellen. Oh, then what did Dad do, whispered Ellen. He said, by God, half-breed or not, there's one Isabel who's a man and he killed Bruce on the spot and gave Meeker a nasty wound. Somebody grabbed him before he could shoot Meeker again. They threw Meeker out, and he crawled to a neighbor's house 
where he was when Everts seen him. Ellen felt Sprague's rough but kindly hand shaking her. And now what do you think of Jean Isbel? he queried. A great, unsurmountable wall seemed to obstruct Ellen's thought. It seemed gray in color. It moved toward her. It was inside her brain. I tell you, Ellen Jorth, declared the old man, that Jean Isabel loves you, loves you terribly, and he believes you're good. Oh, no, he doesn't, faltered Ellen. Well, he just does. Oh, Uncle John, he can't believe that, she cried. Of course he can, he does. You are good, good as gold, Ellen, and he knows it. What a queer deal it all is, poor devil, to love you that terribly and have to fight your people. Ellen, your dad had it correct. Isbel or not, he's a man. And I say what a shame you two are divided by hate. Hate that you had nothing to do with. Sprague patted her head and rose to go. Maybe that fight will end the trouble. I reckon it will. Don't cross bridges till you come to them, Ellen. I must hurry back now. I didn't take time to unpack my burrows. Come up soon and say, Ellen, don't think hard any more of that Jean Isbel. End of chapter 10, part 1